Good afternoon, church. My name is Brett. I am pastor here. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad you are here, you who are either first time or been here for the last few weeks. Thank you for choosing to make us your church home for an hour. Turn with me over to the book of 2 Timothy. We're going to conclude our series on, um, on our core values. And the last one about which we're going to speak is leadership development. Leadership development. Second Timothy. We're going to look at chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. The title of the message is Leadership Development, Training Next. Now we have five core values in this church. Discipleship, lordship, family, evangelism, and leadership development. These five things are the matrix through which we run all that we do, and it helps us to perform optimally according to the vision he's given us. We're going to read 12 and 14 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. Now, for this reason, I also suffer these things. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words, which you've heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. 14. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Lord, help us as we study. There are three things about this passage that I want to communicate. One, God guards. Two, we are to retain. And three, that which we are to retain, we are to guard. The backdrop is that Paul is writing to Timothy. And this is the last letter he would ever pen. He's writing from Roman incarceration. And he's not going to exit from it. He's going to die, and he knows it. Later on in the letter, he says, I've run the race, I have finished the course. And now there's a crown laid up for me. When you have your last words, you want them to be clear, you want them to be sure, and you want them to be uttered to the right people. Timothy was a son, if you will, of Paul's. Not birthed from his own loins, but somebody who was birthed spiritually. He asked uh, Timothy's parents. His mother was Jewish, the father was Greek. He asked him when he was in Lystra, can I take this boy with me? Because he's amazing. He was spoken of well by all the church leaders. And Paul brought him into his world. Back then when you asked for his son to come with you, whether it be for a period of time or whether it be long term, what you were doing is saying, I want him to be an apprentice to me. So a son would, would come to a man who was skilled in a certain craft and learn that craft and make that his own. Paul was asking Timothy to come and learn ministry from him. Indeed, not just to give him a skill, but to actually give him an inheritance because later Paul would call Timothy a son. Though he had a natural mom and dad, Paul had raised him spiritually from a pup and had taught him everything he knew. 
everything, poured his life into him. But something had happened, and we're not quite sure what. Relationship had become strained, not because Paul was distant from Timothy, but Timothy from Paul. And in this letter, he is begging Timothy on more than one occasion to come. When your dad is on his last breath, right around the corner from entering the grave, the last thing you want to do is not be there unless there's an issue. You run when you realize dad may not make it. You hurry up. But Paul has to tell Timothy, could you please come? Please? And the entire tenor of the letter is, don't be ashamed of me or my bonds that I'm in prison. Please, identify with me. Remember what we have, what we have had. Don't distance yourself. Not now, Timothy, because it's going to hurt you to do so. I'm going to go to glory. I realize what's ahead of me. That which I have attained, I have entrusted to him until that day. He's given me eternal life. I'm sure he's got it in store. I have it now. It's internal. But when I pass from this life, I know I'm going to have it forever. The issue is, how are you going to do when I'm gone? What's happened? Why do I have to beg you to come to me? And... There are probably some, some explainable reasons, but none good. And through this process of trying to mine out the primary motivations of why Timothy was distant from Paul, or Paul had to encourage Timothy to come, it's important that all of us understand that leadership development, which Paul did with Timothy in order for Timothy to be an inheritor of his ministry, leadership development goes beyond just a mentor to a mentee a discipler to a disciple. Leadership development is that which everybody in the body of Christ ought to consider themselves employed by, a value that they hold dear and are trying to make sure is competently exercised in your daily activities. And you say, well, pastor, I mean, I don't consider myself much of a leader. I don't have anybody following me. I can't even lead a Bible study very well. I, I just don't I, don't, I don't, I don't, well, the issue is not calling. In order to lead somebody, you don't have to be called. Now, there is a gift of leadership, and few people have it. But most people are just functioning by what they got. So if you happen to have a friend who is going the wrong direction and you know it, that's, that's a very clear cue. Maybe I need to exercise my leadership here and help them understand the best way to go. It doesn't mean they have to follow. It means you are loving them with truth and helping them understand, take this step, not that step. Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20, told the disciples, last words, go into all the world and preach this gospel, making disciples of all nations. So everybody, Disciples, meaning the 12 that were there, and or the 11 that were left, and all who would read this passage and consider themselves a disciple are called to make disciples, which has inherent in the command leadership. 
that you are now helping somebody else become what they need to be, though they don't know how to get there without you. You are leading them. Now, before you start feeling your oats and thinking, oh, well, I am a leader. It's not that kind of thing. You are a servant to help somebody else get to where they can't be. Moms, dads, you're not just called to provide an atmosphere where your children don't die. That's defensive in its orientation. You're called to train them, not just provide food and clothing and hope they figure it out on their own. You are called to train them. And in training, is that not leadership? Taking somebody who doesn't know the best way to be or the right way to go or the best decision to make and helping them do that? And in the process, you grow in your leadership of understanding how to lead at different phases in the children's lives. How you lead at the age of two is very different than you lead at the age of 13. And by the way, parenting never stops. Yeah. Which is very different than how you lead at 29. And I've got a 29-year-old, a 27-year-old, a 24-year-old, a 23-year-old, a 21-year-old, a 19-year-old, and a 16-year-old. I'm learning lead. 17, sorry, dear, thank you. 17, he just had his birthday last week. 17-year-old. I'm learning to lead in a brand new way. I can't just tell for what to do anymore. I'm a divine uh, counselor. I'm an advisor now to all my adult children, dependent upon them to contact me if they want wisdom rather than me butting in their lives as adults. I've got to learn how to lead differently. You have to grow with your children. If you don't, they're going to grow without you. They're going to grow without you and leave you and only call you an emergency. (laughs) My kids are just marvelous human beings. And that more attributable to the grace of God and my wife than me. Marvelous human beings. But the thing they look forward to every year is our family vacations. We all get together. This year we're going on a cruise. Pray for us. <laughs> Nobody falls over, all that kind of stuff. You know, you know. But we're going to have a blast. But they planned this. We've got to go on a cruise this year, Dad. We've got to do this. We've been to the beach. We've been here. We've been there. We've got to go on a cruise this year. And so we said, okay, well, you know, cruises aren't our thing, but we'll do it because, but they, they're the ones who are saying, when can we get together again? They love being around mom and dad. They love being around one another. But that's primarily because we've created an environment whereby family is, a, is, is valued and we give them the freedom even if they make mistakes and we're sitting there thinking, don't do that, don't, don't go there, no, don't do that. We give them the freedom to make their mistakes when they're adults. And then we come back and say, okay, let's fix it. There's nothing too big that can't be fixed. Nothing. We can fix this. We can help. Leadership. Everybody ought to, ought to listen to this message and say, how can I be better at that? Leading. Paul's trying to get Timothy to get back into relationship with him through very good leadership. As he has led him over the past 20, so now he is trying to lead him without saying, you come here. And as a father to a son, he could probably do that. And as a son listening to a father in that context with that much authority and that Paul was the greatest apostle ever. 
Nobody better than him in his day or since. When he says something, if he says it by way of edict and command, you obey or else something bad's going to happen to you. Paul could use that kind of authority to get his boy to his side. And he doesn't. He appeals to him. Paul's an amazing leader. He's just the best. He's just the best. He's just the best. And he says, I am suffering. But, but my suffering is something I'm not ashamed of. I, I, I'm not backing away from it because I realize that my life means nothing. Everything is the gospel. I've given my heart to Christ. I picked up my cross and I said, I'll follow you wherever I go, wherever you go, wherever you lead. I will, I'll, 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 I'll say what you want me to say. I'll do what you want me to do. I'm your boy. That's what I said when I got saved. So, so that I might find myself in difficult situations is no trouble for me because suffering is a part of my future. Though we consider suffering to be something abnormal, do we not? This American dream and the plans that we have for our own selves about how our life ought to be gets in the way of the biblical idea of what life planning is. Suffering is a part of Christianity. For a couple of reasons. One, we are called to go into the dangerous and horrible places to deliver people from that which they have created that is causing their own demise. And so whenever you go into those environments, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you time, energy, strength, money. It's going to cost you because people mess up really good. They are skilled at it. They know how to destroy their lives with precision. They don't even know they're doing it until it's blown up. And then they need you to help. And we are called to run into. We're like the firemen of the world. When a, when a house is, is burning up, all the people are encouraged to get out. Except a few who are told to run in. We're called to run in. So that's going to cause you some suffering. We're called to fix all the problems of the world. That's what the church is supposed to do. And so we create moments where suffering is a part of our agenda. It's always going to hurt to make something wrong right. It's going to cost me. Secondly, we are not what we should be. We think we are pretty good because we always compare ourselves with the worst, but we are not what we should be. And so in order to identify the areas which lack in our lives with respect to conformity to God and what we're supposed to be in his image... The Lord reveals usually those things to us by way of circumstance to let us know how far we are from what we should be. So when the circumstances come and that, 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 that four-letter word that comes out of your mouth, that is probably for the, the 1045. Um, that doesn't happen for any of you 1245 people. But that attitude that comes out, that thing that you wish you had not said, Though you said it many times, just nobody that was really important to hear it had heard it. And now somebody's heard it. And so you're not really sorry you said it. You're just sorry that you said it when somebody heard it. Because now you've got to deal with the consequences of them hearing it. And all those things that come out when things are going well, now you can see them. When Publishers Clearinghouse showed up, you couldn't. Couldn't see them because you were so happy. And everybody can, even the atheist can praise God when a Publishers Clearinghouse shows up. And so you need suffering, difficulty to come your way to show you what you are not. And this is what James says. When trials come, embrace them. Because they are there to show you what you lack, that you may be mature and complete 
and lacking nothing in the future. So that's why suffering's a part of our life. And then the last thing. Suffering's a part of our life because we make really bad decisions. We do stupid stuff and sometimes we shoot our own holes in our own boat. And so we suffer. And I'm begging you, stop that. You have to go through enough already. Stop shooting holes in your own boat by making mistakes and sinning. Stop it. It is possible to reduce the level of disobedience in your life. Yes, it is. You can obey God better today than yesterday and every day after that than the day before. You can figure out how to get better at this. Can anybody be perfect? Don't know. Don't met any, have met anybody that, that, that's there. But can people be consistent and more so every day? Stop that. But suffering is a part of our lives. Paul cared not for his own life. And this is probably what caused the rift between him and Timothy. We don't know what it was, but we think this may have been part of it. That Paul would run headlong into trouble. When people warned him, yeah, so. And you sit there and say, well, we told him. Then he went anyway. I mean, this is what he does. This is what he does. There were a group of people in Acts chapter, I think it's 20, a guy named Agabus came who was a prophet. And they were all, Paul said, I'm getting ready to go to Jerusalem. Now his primary ministry was to the Gentiles, people like us who had no uh, Jewish heritage. But now he was going to Jerusalem specifically to, to help the church, to strengthen the church, to win more people, and if need be, confront those who were in opposition. And everybody knew, you go there, it's not a good idea. They're probably gonna do some really bad things to you. Probably not the best. And then a guy named Agabus hears from God, he's a prophet. And he says, I see the man going to Jerusalem. He begins to prophesy. And he takes off his belt, puts it around his wrists, and says, I see the man going to Jerusalem tied like this. And the people who are going to take him are going to do horrible things to him. To which the church says, oh, thank you, Lord, you've spoken. Now he knows. It's not just our sentiment. You have spoken and you have revealed to this man what's going to happen. And now he's going to make a really good decision. Thank you, Jesus. To which Paul says, yeah, so? So I, I, I don't get it. I mean, you, you think I'm going to stop? Agabus, I appreciate that. All you've done, though, is tune your prophetic, your prophetic ear to the dial I hear every day. He says this specifically. The Holy Spirit warns me of difficulty every place I go. He tells me that all the time. To which the church then said, you mean you're going anyway and they're going to beat you? And you're okay with that? Do you know how many people there are out there who won't beat you? We won't. Just stay here. You can win people in my city. There are places you can go and not experience persecution. But you're going to the places where you know you're going to get beat. When there are people who won't beat you and they want to hear what you have to say and you can advance the kingdom. Why are you making decisions like this? That was his entire life. He cared not for his life. And this was a man, you have to understand Paul's mentality. Even though he was called to the Gentiles, people like us without a Jewish heritage. And in Romans chapter 9, he says, I wish I were accursed that my brethren might come to the truth. He was a Jew. He loved his people. He just wasn't called to them. And when you have a passion like that, it says, I love my people so much, I would take their spot in judgment. Oh, everything within you says, Lord, I know I'm called to a different people, but can I do this once? 
Please, I love him so much. It's hard to stop a man like that when he does not care at all for his own life. All he wants to do is get people this truth to see him saved. Not many people understood that motivation. So now we find Paul in prison again. Out of the 26 to 30 years or so he was in ministry, we think he got saved right about 30, somewhere in the neighborhood of 34, 35 A.D. He only had 30 years of ministry at the most. So we're looking at early 60s. He dies. Out of the 30 years he was in ministry, about three of them were in prison. So one-tenth of his ministry was behind bars. That's a lot. That's a lot of incarceration. But for Paul, it wasn't such a big deal because when he was in prison, he realized the gospel wasn't. And so though he was bodily in prison, there were some people who had to make sure he stayed in prison that were near him. And so all he did was preach to everybody. There was an account in Philippi at Acts chapter 60 where, where not only... Did the prisoners who were around him get saved when Paul and Silas were singing at midnight, the prison doors burst open in an earthquake? The warden got saved. The warden then said, could you come back to my house? Because my people need to hear this. My, mom, my mama, my grandmama, my wife, my whole household, my servants, my kids, they all need to hear. He went back to the man's house in the middle of the night. We're talking probably 2 a.m. Started preaching. Everybody got saved. Everybody got baptized. And then we see him back in the morning In prison. Do you know what what had to have happened in order for that to happen? He's free. I mean, most of us, if we were in prison and the prison doors miraculously, as a result of our praise and worship, flew open, we say, Woo! Oh, Lord, you done answered my prayer. We'd be out of here so fast. He stayed. He stayed, and he ministered to everybody else. The jailer thought they had escaped because everybody escapes when the doors get open. And the jailer was about to kill himself as a result. And Paul said, wait, 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 wait. We're still here, every one of us. He had all the other prisoners whose gates had flown open as a result of their praise and worship, which says a lot about what your praise and worship can do for a lot of other people. Their gates flew open. Their doors went wide. You know where all those prisoners wound up? In his cell. Doing a Bible study. You know the conversation that had to happen between Paul and the jailer after everybody in his house gets baptized. The jailer's house gets baptized. Um, uh, you're, I'm so grateful. I don't know what to do. You've helped me so much. My whole family's right. You could have left and you stayed for um, if, you're, if you're not in, in the jail in the morning, they're, they're like going to kill me because any escaped prisoner is my fault. Uh, can you like, don't say another word. Let's go back to jail. I don't know who this fellow is. He's amazing. He cared not for his own life. He just cared about people so much. That's Paul. Now, nobody may have known all the, the details and intricacies of decisions like that, but every one of them was based on love. But if you're looking from the outside and you try to make church very pragmatic, 
very orderly and, 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 and that which causes the least amount of resistance, then you're looking at Paul thinking, this dude's just, he's out there on the edge, baby. I mean, he doesn't listen to any wisdom. I don't know what's wrong with him. And you wind up like Timothy, saying it's his fault he's in prison. I don't know what to do. I mean, this is what he does. He goes to places we tell him not to, and he gets thrown into prison. Now, there may be other reasons for which Timothy was ashamed, but I can't think of another one. Paul says, please come. Please, don't be ashamed of my bonds. And he says this. I know this. Even though I suffer, I want you to know I'm not ashamed because I know what I have entrusted to him. I know in whom I have trusted. And there are things that need to be entrusted to God from you. Now, the first thing probably, because he knew he was about to check out, was that he entrusted his life to God. And he knew whom he trusted. Therefore, he knew who was going to do what with his life. And he was going directly to heaven. I know I'm going directly to heaven. Whenever I breathe my last... I'm going right through the pearly gates. By the way, that's not in the Bible, but it sounds good. I'm going right through the pearly gates. Right through the pearly gates. Now, why do I have confidence about that? There's no doubt about it. None. Why do I have confidence? It is not because I'm in ministry. It is not because I do good. It is because God has saved me from myself. He himself has allowed me the privilege of coming into his kingdom, not because I do well, but because I haven't done well and he has forgiven me. It is in spite of my sin that I go to heaven, not because of my righteousness. It has nothing to do with how well I do. Now, that doesn't mean you don't need to do well. It just means that you're doing well. doesn't commend you before God. It means somebody worthy of heaven. Because if he has to judge you on your deeds, he must judge you on all of your deeds. Not just your good ones. And you have blown it more than you've done right. Do do I need to say that again? (laughs) You have blown it more than you've done right. So you don't want him to judge you on the basis of what you've done. You want him to judge you on the basis of what Jesus has done for you. So regardless of what I do right, it has no bearing on whether I go to heaven. The reason I, it, it, does, it does have value, just not there. It has value in that whenever I do right, I, I prove that he has made me more right than I've ever been. That's all good deeds are, are the proof of the righteousness that he has given to me as a result of him imparting to me that which he did while he was on the planet and forgiving me of all my sin, wiping the slate clean so that when I appear before God, I appear as Jesus appears, even though I'm not worthy of it. He has enveloped me in his grace so that Jesus, nobody in heaven sees the Brett that did all the stuff bad in the past. They only see what Jesus has done for me. Are, are, are you following me? But when I do stuff right here, it is not to commend myself as being, oh, me first. You don't know. I was better than anybody else since Chantilly. Anybody else? Me. You got to take me first. Had nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with all I want to do is prove that you have made me right by evidencing good works to people. I know it doesn't impress you at all, but it does help people understand what it's supposed to look like, what life is supposed to be. 
So good works are those which evidence the righteousness which God has already established in your life. That's what they're there for. And I am one who is saved on the basis, not of my works, but on the basis of Christ. But I've done some really bad things. And I have entrusted my life to him and have no doubt that I'm going to heaven my entire life, though I have done some bad things. And this is the most important thing that I entrust to him. And I have no confidence, I have no doubt about the confidence that I have placed in him because I know what he says and his word is true. I went on that little bit of, of, of sermonette to talk about the importance of how you need to make sure you can entrust to him things that are near as important as your life. If you can entrust to him your life and he's got that, you're telling me you can't give him your business and feel the same confidence every day? You can't give him your children. You can't give him your friendships. You can't give him your finances. You can't give him your your marriage. If you've given him the most important thing and he's good with that, the other stuff's a piece of cake. You have to be able to entrust him with things. Now, that entrustment doesn't mean you become irresponsible. It's a partnership. You still have your hands on the wheel, but you are taking directions from him. He still wants you to participate in this thing. So it's not like my 16-year-old. I can't do nothing else with him. You take him. I can't. I tried my best. I'm done. I'm done. That's not, that doesn't work. So you still have to partner because God's trying to grow you up, parent, as he's trying to grow up your 16-year-old. He's trying to help you grow up. You need to grow. But God gives you the directions. Turn left here. Turn right there. Go straight, slow down, slow down. Construction ahead. I'm trying to pave the way for you. Slow down. You need to take this one slow. You don't know what's ahead. Take it slow. There are so many things that God wants to partner with you in entrustment. So you give those things to him and you have confidence in the promises that he has made concerning them that he is going to do what he said he would do. God guards these things. He guards your, your life. He guards your business. He guards your finances. He is a guard for that, which you will give him. Secondly, we are called to retain some things. Now, the retention factor ought to be high in your life. There are some things you ought to keep. He says, I want you to retain the standard of sound words. Those which are birthed in faith and love and in Christ Jesus. Now, he wants us to retain not only words, but the standard of sound words. So that means that there is a backdrop to the words which are spoken. Now, Paul said some really great things doctrinally. The best theologian who has ever been. Understood so much and brought out so many principles from the Old Testament to the New. He's the guy to whom we can credit our salvation. It's all God, I get that. But there was a man who figured out how Gentiles could be saved and got all the theology. He was it. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't James. It wasn't John. None of the guys in Jerusalem got it. He was the guy that said Gentiles can come into the kingdom. We owe our experience in knowing God to that man's insight. Amazing. Amazing. And if you read the New Testament as if nobody's ever thought about this before, it blows you away that that man could come up with this without anybody telling him. Except Jesus. So, so stunning. But there's, 
there's a standard that he had behind all those sound words. And he says, Timothy, don't forget the standard. There's a backdrop here. When you speak these sound words, make sure you're speaking with integrity, that you're actually living what you believe. Timothy, make sure that you have some relational integrity in your life, that when you begin to talk about love, that you're actually loving the people you're talking about. Make sure that there are values behind the words you speak so that the words you speak don't become either hard or divisive. Don't let the words you speak be said in such a way that now people argue with you about those words and you get into discussions that you ought not get into. I do not have arguments anymore about doctrine. Somebody says, I don't believe that the Holy Spirit's gifts are for today. And they see me functioning in them. And I I say, okay. Well, don't you want to dialogue about it? No. You told me what you believe. I'm not going to fight you. If you don't want them, you don't have to have them. You can go on with your life. You and God, that's fine. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm not mad at you. Well, what do you believe about salvation? Is it once saved, always saved? Dude, what is wrong with you? I love you. I care about you. I really do. And I want to walk with you. But if if you're going to base our walking on on decisions that are not central to the core of faith and who Jesus Christ is, you want to just argue with me all day long. I can't do that. It's not profitable for me. And those, those questions are not questions founded in a standard of loving the body of Christ. It's found, they're founded on some truth, but contextualized in, I want to be right, and I want to make sure you're wrong. And I need to know on these little bitty things whether I can really walk with you because I don't know if I can walk with you. If you listen, there are, you wouldn't walk with anybody if you tried to make the litmus test whether they believed everything you believed. There are core things that are absolutely critical to whether I can walk with somebody. Jesus is Lord, rose from the dead, died for our sins. God the Father, Holy Spirit, all you that that if somebody believes all that, they're my brother. Amen. They're my brother because I've got a backdrop to all. Now it doesn't mean that I disagree, that I don't disagree with them about a lot of other things, but my backdrop allows me to put all of my sound words in perspective. Are you listening? Amen. Retain the standard. That's why we go through values. It's not just about theology. It's about why we believe theology and how we practice it. Values help us and contextualize all the things that are most important with respect to what we believe. There's a standard there. Hold on. Retain these standards and the sound words. And do it in faith and love that when you are expressing yourself, do it with an attitude of faith, not doubt and unbelief. And do it all in the context of love because people need to hear love when you say truth. If it's only about truth, they may not accept it nearly as much as, you, as if you were to couch it in love. Love people when you talk to them about hard things. Don't just feel like you are the FedEx delivery guy. Dropping a package off in somebody's life of, of truth and you walk away thinking you've done your job. Don't do that. Because there's something else that's supposed to happen there beyond you just delivering your truth. Retain these stand, standards of sound words in love and faith. And make sure you do it in Christ Jesus. That everything is about honoring God in what we do. 
making sure that he is at the center of our entire focus, conversation, and life. And then lastly, he said, guard, guard. This is how you begin leadership development. It's that you realize that God is the one that holds everything in tow. He guards all of us. And without his guardianship, we would be lost. But then he wants us to participate in in the process of, of making sure that other people understand how to guard well because they have to be partners with him in advancing his will in the earth. He doesn't just move like a puppeteer the strings and make people do what he wants them to do. They have to say yes, and this is how we do it. He says, I want you to guard through the Holy Spirit that which has been entrusted to you. And what was the primary thing that was entrusted to him about which Paul is really talking here in this entire book? My relationship to you. We had a thing, you and me. I was dad, you were son, you listened to me. I trained you. I gave you that, I allowed you to have that job in Ephesus. At this time, Timothy was pastoring a church of over 40,000 people. Paul set him in. He was the man. And Paul wasn't trying to say, look at what I gave you, boy. You better fess up. You better come, come correct. He was just trying to remind him that there's an inheritance I want to give you. And this trust that, that you've been given, it's all about us too. It's a relationship. Secondly, there is good doctrine that was given to him. He needed to hold on to that by the Holy Spirit. And lastly, there was an architecture, a way to build. Paul had a blueprint that allowed for churches to function best. And he was brilliant at it. Brilliant. And if you will stick to the architecture, the church will come out as best as it possibly can. Now, I don't know of a perfect church. Doesn't exist. And by the way, if you find one, please don't join it because you mess it up. (laughs) I don't know of a perfect church. But I do know of, of churches that are sound architecturally. That you can knock on the pillars and they don't fall over. You can push the walls and they stay. You can find safety there. You can find equipping there. You can find help there in time of need. You can find sound teaching. You can find equipping. You can find family. You can find a a desire to obey God to the nth degree. You'll find an outreach focus where they're planting churches and they're doing missions and helping the poor. I know churches like that. And although they aren't perfect, they are consistent. There's an architecture. Please hold on to the architecture, he says. Because there's a way to build whereby people are helped best and can help best. Hold on to that and guard it. And when he says guard, that is the thing that, that makes you feel like, he says, guard the deposit or the treasure which has been entrusted to you. These are treasures. They are valuable. If you want to lead well, then you're going to have to take leadership from somebody else. There is nothing new under the sun. And whatever idea you've got about how to lead without having been led is not going to work very well on the people you lead. You're practicing on them. And at some point, they're going to say, unless it's a paycheck that they have to get, bye. And so you want to make sure that you have learned some things from others so that you can lead the way you you, you should without having to reinvent the wheel. There is nothing new under the sun. And so he says, I want you to take the things you've learned, this treasure which has been given to you. And this is what we try to do as I close regularly, is on a Sunday morning, give you treasure. Whether it's the treasure of being able to enter into the presence of God with your soul engaged with the worship team up here in song. 
It's not just about singing songs. It's about allowing your soul to participate in the process of engagement while the words are coming out of your mouth and doing it in a congregational fashion because when that happens with sincerity, God descends and that it says he enthrones himself on the praises of his people. The tangible presence appears and you are changed in a 15-minute period. Something happens here that does not happen when you're singing in your car. And then you might come on a Sunday when I do pretty well. And all of a sudden the anointing of God flows. And there's impartation into your life rather than just education. I'm not trying to make you smarter. I'm trying to make you better. Treasure. Treasure. Now. Are there other congregations who can give you better treasure in an hour? Probably. We're not the best. I know some fabulous ministers. Fabulous. And I sit there and watch them on TV or listen to a podcast. I said, dude, what Bible are you reading? I don't know how you got that from that. That's amazing. I'm I'm just awed at some people and what they can get out of this scripture. So they're better. But you're here. So don't waste it. Hold on to the treasure and guard it. David says it like this. I took your word, Psalm 19. I took your word and I hid it in my heart that I may not sin against you. What do you do with the word when it's said, when it's heard? You walk out saying, wow, great sermon. What do you say? I don't know, but it was great. What do you do with the word out of here tumblers working working as you are figuring out the combination of the vault of your soul so you can open it up and put down everything you know that has been said here that's true and then the closure and you turn in that knob so that nobody can get in there and steal it that's what you do with treasure you guard it like that take these words Hold on to them. Guard them because you're going to need them someday. And you're going to want to know, where was that scripture? Well, well what did Pastor Brett? I, I just, I, that was good. Well, I, Lord, I... Hold on to them so they're in the vault of your heart so that when you need a withdrawal, you can pull it out and make a difference in somebody else's life. Let's pray.